You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For most of us, the possibility that patients may kill themselves is the most emotionally wrenching part of treating psychiatric disorders. Having at one's fingertips a practical approach to suicide assessment is mandatory for all clinicians. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Muzina. Dr. Muzina is Vice Chair for Research and Education at the Cleveland Clinic Neurological Institute and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western University. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. Now, Dr. Muzina, why should we even ask about suicide? Ultimately, the simplest answer to that is if, if we don't ask, our patients often won't tell us. But beyond that, there are, I guess, at least three core reasons why we should be asking about suicide. And I'm happy to share some of that information with you today. Yes, please do. Now, uh, before we do that, talking about suicide often makes clinicians so squeamish. What tips do you have to increase our comfort level in talking about this difficult topic? I think one of the first myths that need, need to be crushed when we consider suicide intervention and suicide assessment is the myth that if, if we talk about suicide, we may give ideas to our patients. And so perhaps the first thing to become more comfortable as clinicians is recognizing that that's not the case and recognizing that most patients actually report a sense of relief when their doctors ask them about suicidal thinking because they themselves are, are uncomfortable bringing it up themselves or they worry that the doctor will think differently of them. Uh, so breaking that myth that asking about suicide puts ideas into patients' heads and understanding that opening this sort of a frank gentle discussion is reassuring to many of our patients should help. But don't you think many docs, especially busy primary care docs, think, oh my gosh, I don't even want to open this can of worms because then I'm going to have to do something. For sure. You know, it goes back to that first question you asked about why asking, though. It's part of the doctor-patient relationship. Just like pain or other symptoms, patients, they may not spontaneously tell us that they're uncomfortable. And it really is our job to ask. And if you get that sense that someone is suffering physically or emotionally in some way, we're all trained to ask more questions. And so I see this as, as just another area of medicine. It's just a, a little bit more touching and a little bit more anxiety-provoking to learn how to do it and to do it in a methodical way. So what model do you use to evaluate suicidality? I guess I'd say that you have to develop your own model or, or borrow one that's out there. And the one that, that comes closest to what I do has been developed by Jacobs and colleagues, and it's called the Be Safe model, and it stands for Basic Suicide Assessment Five-Step Evaluation. And it's kind of a practical approach, asking the right sorts of questions and doing the entire assessment while coming up with a plan on how to act. If you would, let's walk through the five steps. Okay, great. The first step in this Jacob's Be Safe model is to identify predisposing risk factors for suicide. Now, this is, this is kind of a catch-22 because many of us, when we think about suicide and we learn about the sort of risk factors, might think that there is this, a laundry list of risk factors and that if you've got those risk factors, you're clearly at high risk for suicide. But in my review of this, if you read the literature, you'll come away thinking that just about everyone is at risk for suicide because they're both the young and the old, different races, what have you. So that part of this can be tricky. And here I brief in my comments and say, that the one common denominator in terms of risk factor for suicide is the experience of human suffering. So when we see a patient suffering, 
I think that in and of itself should be considered a risk factor. We can't look at laundry lists of risk factors like age and sex, et cetera. Look for this element of, of suffering in identifying predisposing risk factors. I'd also suggest here in this first step that the clinician focus on screening for major mental disorders, especially major depression and bipolar disorder. It's thought that over 90% of all suicide victims suffered with a mental disorder, and usually it's depression. So in this first step, focusing on those major mental disorders, looking for or trying to detect suffering in your patient, and then perhaps some more practical things like, has the patient ever attempted suicide in the past? learning a little bit more about that, and then also asking about a family history of suicide. So kind of in a nutshell, this would be the way of going through the first step, getting to know what's putting the patient at risk. And underlying all of that is if you as the clinician can feel the pain of the patient, this is someone you really want to worry about. That's an excellent point rather than using some epidemiological algorithm. I've never found those sort of algorithms to be helpful. And in fact, you know, I sat down to write about this some years ago. I tried to do just that and come up with a formula, and it was impossible. It was actually frightening to read all that literature and think about all of my patients because it seemed like they would all be at risk if I were to just apply that kind of formulaic way of of practicing. So what's the second step then? The second step is more positive. The second step is you just got done looking at risk factors. Step two is to explore factors in your patient that may prevent suicide or to deter the individual from acting on suicidal thoughts. And these factors can be broken down into a couple of different broad categories, like internal factors. These are things like spirituality, positive coping skills, successful past response to stress. So someone who really internally seems to be more resilient, that may deter them from acting on suicide. But external factors are oftentimes really important. So exploring with your patient their relationship with their family. So the presence of children in the home, particularly young children, is often a deterrent to suicidal action, as are things like particular religious beliefs or prohibitions, a sense of responsibility to family, financial incentives or just deterrence, so their recognition that, their, for example, their life insurance policy excludes payment for suicide. That, that in and of itself although it may sound like such a small thing, can be a big thing to the patient who's contemplating suicide. So step two, exploring factors that can protect your patient from acting on suicidal thoughts. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent, your host, and with me today is Dr. David Muzina. We are discussing suicide assessment. Okay, I think we're up to number three now. Step three of a B-safe model of suicide risk assessment, and this third step is perhaps one of the more uncomfortable areas for clinicians, but it's absolutely necessary, and this is to direct a specific suicide inquiry. So This is more than just asking, are you thinking of killing yourself? And maybe this is why some clinicians are uncomfortable with this, because it's, it's really getting to understand the nature of the suicidal thinking. And I think the best way of doing this third step is instead of just jumping in and uh, asking someone, hey, do you want to kill yourself because you look so bad or you feel so sad, is to start out in a more gentle and supportive way and say, you you look like you're struggling right now. And sometimes when people are struggling like this, they have thoughts that their life is not worth living. And from there, you can follow that up based on the answer you get with more specific questions like, have you thought about hurting yourself? Or have you thought about a way to kill yourself? Do you have a plan picked 
out? Do you have a location picked out? Are you going to write a note? So asking these very specific questions will, will allow you as the clinician to gather a more comprehensive history, a thorough history about what actually is going on in the head of your patient. Are they just thinking about suicide or have they taken steps to turn the thoughts into action? And what about the fourth step? The fourth step is built on what you've done the first three steps. So step four is to determine the level of intervention that's required. So you're following a model where it's a suicide risk assessment, but really the purpose of it is to get to this step four and to determine what should be done based on the assessment that you've just provided. And so here you're weighing those risk factors that you've heard about versus the protective factors in the first couple of steps and making a decision where you're probably going to always want to err on the side of caution when you decide the level of suicide risk here is low, medium, or high, and what is acceptable level of risk. So this fourth step is balancing the protective factors against the risk factors and then coming up with a plan of action on how you're going to intervene in the patient who does have an elevated risk of suicide. So if the fourth step is intervention, what's left for the fifth step? Well, the fifth step is wrapping it all together. The fifth step is the documentation of the total risk assessment that you've just completed. And this this has to be something more than what many clinicians place in their chart notes. For those of you out there, you've, you've, you've probably read it and maybe even done it yourself. You've written in the chart, no SI, no suicidal ideation, and that's it. And th- that really is... Uh, not enough when you're documenting what you've done. If you've, if you've gone through these steps, as we discussed here, the fifth step requires that you, you at least make some statement about the risk level and what that opinion is based on, as well as the intervention that was chosen or not chosen. So here, making a statement about the suicide risk uh, being uh, low uh, because there are so many protective factors, therefore this individual does not require urgent psychiatric hospitalization Or the flip side is when you've identified someone who's particularly at risk and you need to take steps to physically intervene and hospitalize the patient. This doesn't mean an extra page or two pages of documentation. It really is a succinct paragraph about what you think the risk is, why you think it's that, and what you're going to do about it. In our last minute or two, can you talk a bit about suicide contracts and the place for them, if any? Uh, You know, suicide contracts, I think for the most part, are a thing of the past. They were quite commonly employed. I know in the late 80s and early 90s at our institution, they were quite common on the adult inpatient unit. And this was essentially talking with the patient and and saying, can you contract with me that you will not kill yourself when I discharge you from the hospital or that you won't harm yourself in between appointments? There's very little literature and scientific evidence to support suicide contracts done in this fashion as being effective in in any way. That's not to say that they don't have a place, but we have to be very careful with suicide contracts. If a suicide contract is approached as a mechanism of communicating what risks and protective factors are present, then it can be a therapeutic tool that, that benefits the patient. But we should never think about any sort of verbal or written suicide contract as protecting the patient. That really just protects us from thinking and worrying about patients because, hey, they signed a contract. So I would view a suicide contract mostly as being part of an overall suicide risk assessment, and in that way, it really is just a very small part of it. Going through these steps and documenting each step along the way, I presume would give you some protection maybe against litigation? You know, going through steps like this, Leslie, and being careful about the assessment and making sure that you document that you've done this assessment appropriately 
demonstrates to other people reading that chart, and hopefully it doesn't happen to you out there, but if it does, it demonstrates that you were a careful and cautious clinician. You took into account the things that were causing pain in your patient's life and the things that were potentially protecting uh, that patient, and then you've made a, you made a clinical decision based on those variables. So, yes, I believe it offers a substantial amount of medical legal protection. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. We've been discussing the evaluation of a potentially suicidal patient with Cleveland psychiatrist Dr. David Muzina. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.